Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. One of the main purposes of this audio cast is to update our industry members on what academia and research is doing to better understand and combat relevant challenges that one might face on the farm or ranch. Today's episode will absolutely still stick to that model, but admittedly, I'm not sure we have ever discussed a topic previously that carries as much of a social or political component as what we are about to cover. Simply put, Mycoplasma ovinomoniae is a pathogen that poses a serious threat to sheep of many kinds, including wild bighorns in the American West. Now, a quick internet search on this topic will probably bring about an abundance of information, some legitimate and some just conjecture. But sorting facts from fiction about Mycoplasma ovinomoniae can be tricky, to say the least. Fortunately, our guest today has been on the front lines of research trying to uncover the truths behind disease and the complicated nature of pathogen transmission between domesticated and undomesticated species. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Maggie Hyland, who is a diagnostic pathologist and section head of pathology sciences and professional veterinary services at Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Lab to our show. Thanks for being here today with us, Dr. Hyland. Thank you for having me, Jake. I'm, I'm glad I could sure. join you. Now, before we dive into the topic, uh, would you mind providing a little bit more background about yourself and how you came to be in your current role? Um, so my background, I'm a, a veterinary medical doctor, so a DVM. Uh, received that from UW-Madison, where I'm back to right now. Um, I Full did story. a a pathology residency was UC Davis. So I actually, rather than going to veterinary school to, to um, give vaccines to puppies and kitties, I went to become a pathologist. That was my goal was to become a pathologist. So um, I immediately did a residency at UC Davis. And then I came back to Wisconsin 2008 to 2010 to do a wildlife uh, pathology fellowship to get better, more training in uh, wildlife uh, uh, pathology and diseases. And then I went to Pullman, Washington after that, where I completed a, a, a PhD with the USDA. And that is actually the first time I really had even heard of bighorn sheep <laughs> um, uh, for the good or the bad that it, <laughs> over the last 12 years. So, um, so this topic, I, I had seen it a lot in the news back in 2009 on USAHA's website about bighorn sheep pneumonia outbreaks. And I was looking for a job after the fellowship. And um, it was Dr. Don Knowles had a posting in a job position um, on the uh, American College of Veterinary Pathology's website for a PhD position, which was really interesting. So if, if stars were meant to align, um, um, that's, that's, that was, that, that would be a great example of that happening. So, um, Don was a mentor to me with the USDA. So my PhD was with the USDA as a USDA trainee. And it was on the topic of bighorn sheep, domestic sheep interface, not interface issues. It was supposed to be just an immunology PhD, right. more of a public, uh, a, a PR, so public yeah. representative for this topic. So, um, so it was not. It was six years. Uh, it was nine years there. So I, I stayed after my PhD and did research on bighorn sheep and domestic sheep uh, pneumonia and diseases. Um, uh, not just pneumonia, but, um, and then I went to Kansas after that to become a diagnostician. When Don left USDA, I kind of followed in his path to get back to the pathology world at Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab for almost three years. And then this position opened and it was a great opportunity to make a full circle and come back home. Yep. So awesome. it's kind of a convoluted history, but Mycoplasma. No, that's great. Mycoplasma of pneumonia has followed me across the country and we'll talk yeah. about it probably through this podcast a little bit. Yeah. So was it just the timing of that opportunity to take that position in Washington or was there it something was. else that it, caused no, you to become interested? It was. I was looking for a job in uh, to be an anatomic pathologist to use the training that I had just received. And they're on the job bulletin board. So the whole reason like domestic interface, um, environmental type issues have always interested me. Um so, and working with 
with wildlife, but only on the pathology aspect of it um, was more so of an interest, but uh, the domestic aspect um, and that interface issue um, really came about after I took on um, uh, the position with the USDA doing the PhD training. So, um, and it was, it was really weird timing. So that position was posted. And like I said, USAHA kept having, if anybody remembers 2010 was the year that there were like nine states or five states and nine huge outbreaks that were going to, was going to yeah. wipe out bighorn sheep in the West. And it was, uh, it coincided with a lot of litigation at that time. So um, you don't see that in the news as heavy. And I never did sense really over those several years when I started working on this topic uh, with the USDA. But um, so it was interesting. So I just had started hearing about this issue and that job, popped up, which wasn't really a job. It was a training position with the USDA. So at WSU. Wow. Well, that's really neat to hear. Thanks for, for filling us in on that. So our listeners, you know, are from many different regions uh, in the U.S. across the whole country and, and most likely have a pretty varied understanding of, of bighorn sheep, domestic sheep, and the interface you're talking about and the, the potential transmission of mycoplasma over pneumonia. Uh, so this uh, this might end up being the toughest question that I ask you today, but uh, can you just summarize a bit for us the situation with, uh, you know, those those domestic and, and undomesticated species and, and mycoplasma open pneumonia and, and what is what is kind of going on? So it was probably not until around, I would say, 2008 that uh, mycoplasmoma pneumoniae was identified. It's often called MOV for those of the listeners. I will not say that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that or MOV, I hear it called a lot. Um, but it was about 2008 um, that mycoplasmoma pneumoniae started being mentioned as a primary agent of big of bighorn sheep pneumonia in the West. Um, but that's not when bighorn sheep pneumonia in the West started, right? So it started the coughing syndrome. If you read historic uh, articles in mammalogy, for example, um, the first talks of of um, of disease in bighorn sheep on the mountains, they were overhunted by European settlement to start with, so their population declined. Um, they don't talk about a coughing syndrome really in them until like the 40s. So I don't know what changed. I don't know if that kind of depletion of the population uh, due to other things, maybe parasites, ectoparasites were one. I think that was a burden upon them. But so say 1940s is when we first started seeing or uh, old documentation of the coughing syndrome or animals coughing on the hill out west. Um, then for a long time, uh, it probably wasn't really investigated until I would say the 80s or some of the first papers. Um, and the first instance of, as, as rumor has it and documentation, in the 80s, uh, um, there was a parasitologist at um, WSU and a person, a, a, a DVM PhD, I believe he was, um, at UC Davis, they both decided to bring bighorn sheep into captivity. Now, the original plan for that, I think, was to make hybrid sheep, potentially, okay. or to have them in captivity. But they noticed when they put them with domestic sheep that they would have die-offs in the bighorn sheep population. So confinement, even though it's large area, it's still not their natural habitat, right? So, um, uh, so there was the first connection made there, right? So... Studies of closer confinement has showed that upwards of near to 100% of bighorn sheep that are brought in from the wild or raised in captivity that are put together with domestic sheep end up developing fatal pneumonia or severe illness, um, respiratory illness, so pneumonia, whether it's fatal or not. Um, but about 95 plus will die of pneumonia in captivity. So they did cultures, like the standard way to identify a bacteria, and started down the path that this was uh, the Mannheimias of the that we have, or Pasteurella bacteria, yep. because they're easy to culture. But it was often mixed culture, and um, the first identification of mycoplasma ovenemonii was almost like it was swept under the carpet for some reason. And that was, I think it was 1984 or 1986. 
it was a side note in a paper that talked about uh, like the respiratory disease complex. And, oh, there was a plate that had what was determined to be mycoplasmoma pneumoniae. That's really uh, interesting. Uh, so interesting enough, mycoplasmoma pneumoniae was not even identified until I think it was 1962 because it's very, very difficult culture. So what we typically used as a way to diagnose mycoplasma or, or, or identify its presence in tissue, um, does, it, it's a very, it's called a fastidious organism. Um, so it takes very special, um, to, to, to adequately culture it, it takes very special media, and, and um, enrichment um, to do that. Yeah. Pretty stringent protocol. So having not been identified until the 19, like 1962, and that was a coughing syndrome in domestic sheep in Australia, then in New Zealand, it was isolated finally within a couple of years and identified to be a primary agent in, in, in sheep. Um, so um, let's see, where were we? So the problem then went from it being a Mannheimia hemolytica focus. Right. Yeah. So not just pastorellas, even though it was multiple pastorellas that were being identified. Uh, the name has changed a lot. Mannheimia hemolytica used to be pastorella hemolytica, which was in the same family as like what's now Bieberstenia traillosi are considered the same type of organism and they're different. Um, but so it went down a path that this had to be Mannheimia hemolytica. Well, probably what was fatal to the bighorn sheep was Mannheimia hemolytica. That's a very okay. uh, virulent, if you will, a deadly sure. pathogen. Mycoplasma of pneumonia, on the other hand, kind of hides out and it's that primary agent that sets up shop. So given that, it can often be overgrown. And then given that it's hard to detect, it wasn't until there was molecular detection methods. So it's one's called PCR, PCR. And sequencing, cloning, like these more advanced techniques that right around 2008, like I was saying, was when they, when it was, um, when researchers at WSU and with the Idaho Fishing Game um, um, started doing these more advanced techniques or molecular techniques that started identifying mycoplasma of pneumonia in a very high number of bighorn sheep that had pneumonia, both in captivity. So they went back and looked at historic tissues and looked at um, uh, animals that were dying in the wild. And, um, and thus in 2008, over the last 15 yeah. years, it just has grown. Uh, the research on mycoplasma of pneumonia has just grown. Um, immensely. And the thought was for a long time that, that because when you put bighorn sheep with domestic sheep, and that was the highest fatality, they've thrown goats into that mix. Now goats, the studies, they don't die like they do with sheep. And there's been a lot of, um, that's more on the political side of it, but there's been banning of goats too. And, um, uh, but it seemed to be more that connection with sheep was made in, in research settings. And so then it was assumed after identifying mycoplasma ovinomoniae, the ovi part comes from ovis, which is the, the species, right? Genus and species um, of, uh, of sheep. So ovi meaning sheep, pneumoniae meaning lung or pneumonia. Um, so it was just assumed from the very naming of it that this was a pathogen of domestic sheep. Yeah. And they had to have brought it to the United States because that's when all of the problems started with the coughing on the hill, etc. Um, so um, let's see, where do we want to go with this next? Then started um, dogma that only sheep and goats or members of the subfamily Capernae uh, can carry this. Um, so that's muskox because it's been reported in muskox. Um, causing an outbreak, though, and then that would be sheep and goats, be it wild or domestic. So there was this dogma, without ever investigating further, that those are the species that can that can carry it, and it's only uh, true host really is the domestic sheep and goat, and they introduced it into wild sheep and goats, and it causes pneumonia when it's introduced, which is nothing is that black and white. 
in, right. in, in physiology and disease in veterinary medicine and human medicine, it's rare that something's that black and white. You put a sheep next, a domestic sheep next to a bighorn sheep, or if they come in nose, nose contact out on a range that there's going to be a pneumonia outbreak that, that yeah. ins, ensues, right? Like it every, yeah, every time a bighorn has mycoplasma pneumonia, it had to have come from a, from a domestic right. sheep. There. I do want to ask you though, or bring up at least that I heard you give a, a really great talk a couple weeks ago uh, about infectious diseases, just in general, not just mycoplasma of pneumonia, and how you know disease itself is not transmitted, but rather is a culmination of a few factors that depend on the host, the environment, and the pathogen that may cause the disease potentially. Uh, can you explain that a little bit further? Uh, how you know disease transmission isn't as clear as you know some people might think so disease transmission um is a misnomer right i try yeah. never to say that but it rolls off the tongue very easily right yeah. um so it's actually pathogens that are transmitted right so disease may or may not ensue may not follow a transmission event so um uh, you're kind of guiding me where I was was going with this, uh, with my my commentary on your first question that I went on about um, the contact between domestic and bighorn has to be where bighorn always contracted. So what we do know that um, pathogen transmission does not equate to disease, right? So there's three components for disease to happen, and I call it the beast, the bug, and the burden. That's the, the talk that you were um, referring to in the question. So the beast being the host, right? So bighorn sheep, a domestic sheep, a big a mountain goat, a domestic goat being the host, the pathogen um, that we're talking about or that we're, we're focusing on with, with bighorn sheep pneumonia is mycoplasma of pneumonia. Um, and then the burden is the really important part. So, and why I say it's it's a, a very important part with mycoplasma of pneumonia is because so many hosts, domestic and wild, and wild bighorn sheep yep. can carry and do carry this organism, this bacterium, and they are seemingly healthy. Um, the same with goats. Um, mountain goats have been identified. There were there was a worry that they brought mountain goats in near, I want to say it was near Tetons, near um, Yellowstone, and they were worried that mountain goats were going to transmit it to the bighorn sheep there. So it, it, it's not cut and dry that um, yeah. that if an animal has carries is infected by this organism that there is going to be disease. So um, it's it's a complex organism. And I, again, it's really that burden, the burden being the environment, uh, stressors that are in the environment, um, crowding. So there's things that they know will, will, um, will cause this organism to evolve into disease conditions in domestic animals. They call it barn cough. So Midwestern, humid, dusty environments, mycoplasma loves to be in that. You put crowding as a factor, so competition of some sort, poor air quality, and you'll develop the coughing syndrome um, that, that the primary agent of is mycoplasma of pneumonia. So Definitely not cut and dry, um, yeah. and uh, that that an animal's necessarily diseased because they carry this agent. So right. So let's say though, um, let's just say bighorns, for example. What is the progression to disease state if it does make it that far uh, once they contract mycoplasma over pneumonia? Um. So. So mycoplasma over pneumonia, if once it infects a host infects upper airway first. It likes epithelium. Um, so epithelium being that that layer that lines your your airway, upper airway, lower airway. Um, and I haven't talked about this in a long, uh, quite a while actually in talks, but I talk about uh, previously with the American sheep industry meetings about cilia, all that line oh, your yeah. airway, right? So you have like this carpet and a bunch of little finger-like projections. So mycoplasma of pneumonia loves to colonize along those projections and it's said to paralyze them. So once you don't have that movement of what they call the escalator, escalator so 
um, to bring up bacteria that you breathe in naturally. Like as I'm talking to you, I'm probably breathing in about a million bacteria on every breath that I'm taking. Um, they've done some studies on how many bacteria domestic sheep wow. will breathe in on every breath. Um, so, um, so the progression, once, once it colonizes the upper airway, if the immune system, that's another big component, right? So that's part of the host and the environment can impact the immune system. So if you're stressed, if there's poor air quality, if it's very cold, nutrition status is down, outbreaks often occur in the wintertime. Um, when animals are at lower in the wild, especially, right? So given sort of a suppressed immune system, that bacteria will take off and proliferate along the, epi along the respiratory tract and um, paralyzing those cilia um, in and of itself, it may not cause a fatal pneumonia. It can compromise the host, the right, because you're not clearing up mucus like you should be. Um, so you will develop like uh, inflammation in those lower airways just from that alone. But often what happens is those other bacteria that live up in your respiratory upper, in your nasal passages, in your mouth, in their mouth, um, will fall into the lungs. And some of those can be quite path, they're pathogens, so they can be quite virulent. So one is Mannheimia hemolytica. Um, the other, there's uh, Truparilla, you'll often get out of there. So it's usually a mixed bag when you do the culture. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the progression you get. A, I've always called it, it's a, it's a polymicrobial pneumonia. Cattle industry would probably refer to it as, as BRD, so bovine respiratory disease complex. Um, it's very similar. When I started working on this and reading, that's the first thing I said. And um, a few people were like, don't call it that. I'm like, but it, but it is that. So in the bovine world, you get mycoplasma bovis as one of the starting agents or a virus. And then they succumb to other bacteria that are dropping into their lungs. So it's very similar um, in domestic or wild sheep. Okay. So it's not really working just by itself. It's kind of a concert of, of mix yeah. of, of bacteria that causes the disease. Yeah. And my, my, my favorite two words, it's polymicrobial and multifactorial. I haven't said that okay. in a right. long time. I did research on this, but it really is a multifactorial. So multiple factors play a role in disease, um, uh, actual propagation to disease with, with um, mycoplasmovin ammoniae playing a primary role. Sure. Now, do we know, or, you know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong by even saying this, but do we know why bighorns seem to, to be more susceptible to pneumonia caused by mycoplasma ammoniae than, say, domestic sheep? We don't. And I... Some will say that they have not evolved with it, but you yeah. say, how long does it take an animal to evolve to, right. to be, or have they evolved with it? Are they more susceptible? Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many herds that carry it now. Um, they say herds that are, they absolutely don't carry it because they capture them all the time, you know, like kind of the repeated capturing and collaring and tagging their ears and they swab them. But I can tell you, even for like domestic goats that I've swabbed up to seven times, I've swabbed the first five times without a detection in a, in a group of 25 animals. And then all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden on the sixth one, they've <laughs> not brought anybody in. They haven't removed anybody. So what I don't understand is why some animals or some herds, there's got to be something else that is happening. That burden that's, that's on a herd in and of itself, I think even bighorn sheep can handle infection with mycoplasma ammoniae because there are herds that do. Um, yeah. So there was some thought as to other other bacteria that are being carried in the upper respiratory tract. That work was being done in Montana. If you kept capture, is there if mycoplasma ammoniae is present? Do herds that have, say, like the virulent forms of manheimia, are they more likely to have those outbreaks? Is it those other path that potential pathogens that are present with that baseline of mycoplasma ammoniae already there? Are they more likely to have outbreaks? And I don't know that we've seen consistency with that either. Um, and it's unfortunate, even in some of the research that I've done that that is still 
underway of being published was trying to understand immune response, right? Do bighorn sheep inherently respond different to the, to mycoplasmoma pneumoniae? I don't know that either. A hypothesis I always have had was, you know, when they had that initial die off and if it was due to parasites that, that um, the ones that survived initial introduction of parasites, maybe from sheep that domestic sheep, European sheep. Um, did we leave a population that was really good at fighting off a bighorn sheep that was really right. good at fighting off parasites? But then that means their immune system took a course to fight off parasites, yeah. leaving animals that were better at fighting off, you know, bacteria or yeah. viruses. It, it, it left them more susceptible maybe to bacteria. There's, a lot of theories and nothing has been proven. Looking at just the the immune response um, would be helpful. And they're, like I said, they're, the research project with the captive animals that I had um, will hopefully be published uh, soon. Um, there is some indication, but those animals are captive. And I still question doing that. Is that right. real? Of a real flexion. Yeah, if you, even if you raise them in captivity, um, from the time that they're born, they're still wild animals. The males were not afraid of me. They would knock people around. Um, it was an unnatural situation for them. They would spook right. relatively easy or get really upset when we left. Just more, I always wondered if if they, and, and we try to look at cortisol, that might not be the best yeah. marker of stress. I, I don't think it is. I don't know what we physiologically due to those animals, if that's a representative, if you raise them in captivity, because things that you do from even the very beginning, trying to raise them the same could alter their immune system when they become adults. So how to examine it is, is, is a tough one, but I don't think enough investigation has been done to determine whether or not stressors at this point in time, now that we know mycoplasma pneumonia is so spread in bighorn sheep populations to back off a little bit, stop the captures. You know, I I know that that is a stressor. I've been on those. Uh, Yeah. I I had to not go on them anymore. They stressed me out. The, the stress animal that's captured. Um, It was, it, it's, 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 it's devastating to somebody who's empathetic to animals to be around. So, um, I, I don't have an answer. That's a long-winded way of saying, yeah. I don't know. And there's so many factors that could be playing a role for what we're seeing for a difference. Um, uh, it, it'll be hard to pinpoint, but I think we need to focus more on that and more on the, on the agent to try to figure out why, why when an outbreak happens or why even in a domestic population when barn cough develops and there's a subgroup of animals that develop that are really sick and the rest of them are like, man, whatever. It would tell me that there's a host difference too. Yeah. Well, I want to follow up on on that uh, in the domestic population. Do we know what percentage of domestic sheep uh, are infected or even, even subclinically infected with mycoplasma over pneumonia? So there was, so APHIS does the NOMS, the National National Animal Health Monitoring uh, System, and they do the 10-year survey, right? So 2001 was sheep, 2011 was sheep. In 2011, they took nasal swabs. And I probably should have reviewed this. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I want to say it's like 80, high 80% of flocks. It's high in domestic sheep. Um, it is high, and I know this is primarily sheep, but for anybody that has goats that uh, we just finished a goat study, goats carry ovum pneumonia at a much lower, it'll be significantly lower, actually. We tested 8,600 goats in 22 states. I can't remember how many farms that was. Was it 300 and some farms that were part of the 2019 goat study? So that'll hopefully be coming out too to do a comparative. Um, but for sheep that carry it, um, yeah, it's a relatively high, high number. We used to um, do repeat sampling, for example, at like USSES um, in, in Dubois, Idaho, when I worked for the USDA um, to try to to look at whether, um, you know, there was a breed or some sort of genetic difference on whether an animal sheds it. Now that's not saying carriage, that's having an animal that 
that carries it and sheds it at a detectable level. And I think that's another important point to come back to. When I was talking about you can test an animal seven times, five times, yeah. it'll be negative, it'll never be around another animal, and then all of a sudden you'll have a detection. I don't know what happened at that point in time uh, or what happens um, uh, in an animal that it is it controlling an infection. We used to think, you know, there's some animals that every single time you test them with the sheep that we tested at Dubois, they were consistently positive. And then there's like this middle group of animals that one time positive, second time positive, then negative, negative, positive. They would go back and forth. And then there were some animals that we would, we tested up to five, six, seven times that were never had a detection, the same animal. And they're in the same crowded areas that they're getting ran through for sampling. Um, so there's some indication that there's a genetic difference. There's definitely a breed difference that was pretty apparent. Yeah, I was going to ask you, where was, you know, was one breed overrepresented in one of those, you know, susceptible, susceptibility scales or, or you know. Yeah, and I don't know. So they always say, like, folks say suffix aren't meant to be on the range. So I'm going to say this with the, the caveat that yeah. these were Suffolk that were living on the range and, and yeah, yeah. boy, miserable. They always came in with snotty noses. Yeah. Like they just yeah. were not a, a, a breed for, um, from what I've learned from, from, um, from ranchers um, and yeah. shepherds and working at USSES. So was it that, that stress? They're just, they don't, that's not their thing. Is that why they consistently shed the most? They were at a very high level, significantly higher and more yeah. consistent repeat uh, detection. Um, Rambouillet, the least positive, like consistent positives was in there. And then Polypay were somewhere in between, but that's kind of a mixture breed, right? right. So I don't yeah. Those were the three main. Um, Targi, I think, fell somewhere in between, but we didn't have a, uh, a significant number of them. I think that stayed in the study throughout. Um, some of that work has been recently published um, with the uh, ARS, uh, Animal Disease Research Unit, out of Pullman, um, uh, trying to look at a genetic correlates to that, um, uh, the shedding factor. So, yeah. Well, I do think it's also interesting that you talked about goats, uh, you know, the, the percentage of goats that, that have mycoplasma ov pneumonia is lower. Does it, you know, does it still affect if, if it's going to uh, proceed to disease state, uh, does it still affect goats kind of the same way that it does sheep? It does. Um, so um, lower detection. I never say that an animal is negative ever working with this organism. So yeah, so they do, they have a much lower detection. Um, and no, I've seen, I've seen young kids that are compromised in some way or another, um, just be working in the diagnostic field, right. At a veterinary diagnostic lab. So ectoparasitism, so, so lice infestation, and you'll have like secondary. Um, I know for certain, that um, there is a correlate between low nutritional status, so poor um, uh, vitamin and mineral levels, like low vitamin E and selenium, um, can be associated. That hurts your immune system, so it'll you'll see pneumonia in um, uh, in domestic goats. Yeah. And interesting, even though you, you often don't see it, if you, and some research has been done on this, and I've also collected samples at abattoirs from from uh, butcher age, so like nine month old, eight to 12 month old um, lambs. And um, you'll see pneumonia in just one little area, lung lobe, and it doesn't go any further and they just kind of live with it. Um, there's, there's back and forth on whether it causes growth rate inhibition, if they're living with that pneumonia or not. Some say yes, some say no. It, the studies have been back and forth on that. Um, but back to goats. So yes, especially, I would say, especially in young that are raised in too crowded of an environment or maybe muddy. Yeah, less than optimal environmental conditions and less than optimal nutritional conditions. Yeah. Well, some research that I, I definitely wanted to, to ask you about it and to get to. I'm excited to hear your answer to this. Uh, you, know, you led a, a, a project that looked at the host range of mycoplasma ovidemonia and, and what other species may carry it. And, and maybe I'm incorrect on this, but it, it seems like for so long, the perception was, and maybe it still is, 
that domestic sheep are the source of this pathogen. And, and that is where, you know, that's where bighorns get it from. But can you share with us what your research found about the host range of, of this agent? Yeah, this um this is probably the most exciting research thing in in my uh in my last 13 years. So, um I just I started looking at um true host range. I kept just kept hearing that Mycoplasma pneumoniae is only carried by the only hosts that carry. It was it's a constant theme and you can look back in from 2008 research articles yeah, sure. that even newspaper articles, right? Like you had stated. And this is no no joke where this came from. I was reading through and a picture popped up like reading through some research and a picture popped up at the end of like I don't remember if it was wild Wild Sheep Foundation or a publication, and there was a bighorn sheep. It was one of the proof things, right? That bighorn sheep jump in with domestic sheep, and laying in the background under a tree is a deer. And I went, I wonder if <laughs> if other yeah. species like this, like light bulb, like how sure are we? You know, because right, you yeah. start to hear that so much, and so I started looking. Um, at deer asking, you know, APHIS, if you get nasal swabs or asking um, Colorado Department of Ag, um, a couple of folks with there. So Dr. Dan Love and Ed Klein, um, they started collecting nasal swabs for me whenever they got the chance. So started looking at that and um, using a, a published PCR assay. So that's the molecular detection. It was like within the first five deer that I looked at had a detection and I was like, no one's going to believe this. So we have to do sequencing. Well, it turns out that's where this, um, a different, a different type of mycoplasma was identified. So I was a little like, oh, well, maybe, maybe they don't carry it. So I kept looking. Um, and then I got, um, uh, I'm on the AASRP. So American Association of Small Ruminant practitioners. And I see on one of their listservs, somebody said, has anybody, does anybody know how to treat mycoplasma ovenomoniae in white-tailed deer? And I was like, what? That was out of the Midwest. Um, And sure enough, though, that farm, that captive farm had mycoplasma ovenomoniae. I had gotten samples from them and then identified it from a zoo sample, from actually two zoo samples, um, and it's published in a in emerging infectious disease, um, and then started working with Alaska and um, received samples from caribou. So it was like a twelve percent incidence in caribou. Wow. Um, that was shot down that, you know, it was contamination that my lab didn't right. really identify it in them until an, a, the uh, diagnostic lab in Washington also confirmed, hey, that they actually yeah, do carry true. it. So, so it expanded the the host range, right? So the host range right now that I know is really uh, Caprolinae, right? So that's deer family, sheep, goat, and muskox. So sheep, goat, muskox, deer, which is moose. Um, I've also detected it, and this is published that it's been identified in cattle. So there was there's a the Sympatric cattle paper out of Colorado. It was one of the harshest winters experienced in in decades, I guess. Um, and there are pictures of bighorn sheep that were jumping into feed areas and yeah. eating right beside um, cattle. No. They went back and tested those cattle. I want to say it was a month later, and they were still detected. Mycoplasma ovenomoniae. When I first went to Kansas, and I don't think that this would be um, uh, out of the realm to talk about it without giving, you know, obviously owner name or location or anything, but we received a sample um, from a bovine and I hadn't been there more than two months. This was mycoplasma following me across the country. Yeah. And the bacteria, one of the bacteriology um, microbiologists comes to me and said, you gave a talk about mycoplasma ovenomoniae. And the so this might interest you. There's like this sheet of bacteria that are growing on the, a, a nasal swab from a cow. And we tested them and they're, they're mycoplasma ovenomoniae. Do you see that ever? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, 
So detected it there um, and then detected it while I was there in captive white-tailed deer again. Um, but the controversy, and, and we allude to this, why it's such a big deal in the West, and maybe we're going to talk about that a little bit. The politicized nature of this problem has actually, I think, inhibited our understanding yeah. of this organism because when it was identified in high association, it's just like, that's what it is. Black and white domestic sheep are doing this, identifying it in other species like a true host range. I would hate to think that um, that that political push and pull would would limit and bias research. But yep. this may be a topic that that has happened. Um, it was a very difficult topic. It was part of why I left, actually, probably yeah, working sure. with USDA. Um, I felt like when I did something that was like, hey, we need to investigate this. So the denial that it's in in other animals, for one, right now in captive white-tailed deer, it's an inhibitory for them. They have a open pneumonia problem, multiple herds of captive white-tailed deer. I'm working on it. It followed me here even. Um, yeah. It was the first white-tailed deer. We have get a lot of them. It's mm -hmm. the first white-tailed deer farm. One of my colleagues brought a histology. So looking through a microscope at lung. And I said, this animal has an underlying mycoplasma infection. And we sent it to Kansas State, who has a really nice that I, I didn't develop it. I just was the push for it to get developed a really sure. nice mycoplasma o pneumonia detection assay. Um, and it was, you can't say highly positive things really are, aren't, but it had a high load of mycoplasma o pneumonia. So I, this, this particular farm has been very willing to work with us. They care about, they care about the health of their animals when it was in, um, when I was in Kansas, the farm that sent it in, I shared a lot of the information with them um, about what was going on out west, and then they would never contact. They wouldn't <laughs> the phone again because it's it's scary, right? So white-tailed yeah. deer. This isn't about white-tailed deer, but they already have another interface issue between wildlife and captive white-tailed deer, which is chronic wasting disease, right? So. Um, it's not just captive white-tailed deer, but what I think happens, it's an unnatural situation for them to be in captivity also. It is. They, they're still wild yep. animals. Sure. Um, uh, so if they have mycoplasma of pneumonia, and no sheep or goats anywhere around the, the farms that, that yeah. these people know of at all, and I, I went to this last farm, the farm that we're working in with right now, that's not afraid to kind of work this up and talk about it. They have even admitted they just built this facility and they said when they have their, their, their white-tailed deer in the small pens, about 24 on two acres, it's when they notice they start to get snotty and start coughing. And, and they said, it's almost like it clears up when we let them go, let them go is out on the hunting preserve. That's 250 acres. Yep. So if anything is not, uh, doesn't pinpoint to somebody. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a stress. It's a burden component. Yeah. They have really bad uh, pneumonia. They've been, ca they capture and try to give antibiotics to, to control the secondary infection, but they can't get rid of the mycoplasma of pneumonia. Yeah. So we've identified it in wild. So anyway, wild deer, yeah. domesticated deer, uh, caribou, um, moose, um, I've yeah. identified it in the only bison I've ever tested from a preserve, um, in the Northern Rockies area, but that didn't make it into the emerging infectious disease because that was a head that was opportunistically yeah. one of the folks from Colorado. And I couldn't yeah. chain of custody, like, you know, like yeah, yeah, sure. that head was, but I don't, I don't think it's as restricted. There's a there is a book, and I love this quote, and I should have brought it up to, to say it um, uh, during this podcast. But the main concept is if you don't if you don't look, mycoplasmas are considered all species, many species of mycoplasmas are considered to be species specific. But that's only because they're hard to identify, right? And if you don't look and you have a population that can be a carrier, an infected carrier, that's not under a stress where it could play a role in, in disease, prog progression to disease, 
you don't know the true host range, right? Like yeah. it, it seems too odd that only sheep, goat, you yeah. know, carry, right? It just didn't, right. especially when deer, deer are an interesting species. They seem to be like the pool of, you know, like the whole COVID thing and affecting them and, and mycoplasma bovis affects them. So that was the thought that went from seeing that yeah. picture of a deer and going, you know, deer carry bovine. A lot of things. Yeah. And they're more closely related to sheep and goat, right? They're in the Caprolinae. They're in the same yeah. family. So um, so it only made sense to me to look, you know, at yeah, other species. Sure. And the important part of that is, even if it's not a political thing, it, it, it was turned into one, right? Identifying in another species, it's like, hey, we are not going to be able to control an endemic pathogen in this country because we don't even know the host range. When multiple animals can get it, it's hard to detect. It's hard to determine who's a carrier. So rather than trying to eradicate it and eradicate sheep from certain areas and goats banning sheep from certain areas, how about we try to understand how animals can live with it rather than trying to eradicate it because they don't know because it it being such, so it's not like, you know, like the pleuropneumoniae mycoplasmas that were eradicated in the United States. There are really virulent pathogenic mycoplasmas. Pleuropneumoniae is one of them. Um, This one's not, it's carried by many animals, many hosts, same species, many within the same species, and it doesn't always cause disease. So what can we do to get animals to be able to live with it? Um, I have always thought was a, was a better question than, than eradicating and removing because you remove domestic ant, you remove all the domestic animals. Um, I have said this and I, I'll, I'll say the political part of this, you get rid of a a domestic egg industry in the West, you are still going to have animals that carry mycoplasma of pneumonia. So I, I recently, uh, read another paper of yours and it looks like, and maybe this is still ongoing in some respects, that some previous tests for detecting mycoplasma ova pneumoniae were maybe inadvertently identifying um, a different mycoplasma. Uh, Did I interpret that correctly? You did. And I I started to allude to it when I said my first deer that I tested and I was like, oh my gosh, this is positive. No one's going to believe it. So it's a published assay um, that was developed um, in Pullman. It was developed at Waddle. It was used up until 2016 when I had worked there. Um, And I started getting detections. And then when I sequence, and that's actually looking more in depth at the bacteria itself to make sure what it really is when it has a lights up as a positive with this, this PCR test. And it came back, it came back with too low of a similarity to be mycoplasma conjunctivae and not similar to ovenemoniae, except for in the two regions where, and that's too, maybe too, too much science detail, but it's a coincidence because the only two areas that it's similar to mycoplasma ovenemoniae are the PCR primary yeah. that would require amplification. And then when it would amplify that middle region, it looked nothing like over pneumonia, yeah. like we're talking low eighties, but it was most similar, but only 96, 94 to 96% similar to another mycoplasma that causes conjunctivitis. So eye infections, mycoplasma conjunctivae. So I started calling it mycoplasma conjunctivae-like. Now it's called a novel mycoplasma novel species respiratory associated. Um, That has been identified in all sorts of animals. Every ungulate animal that I've tested, everything with hooks that I've ever tested um, can carry it potentially. So, um, so false positives, yes, it, it would it would show a detection with an with an old PCR that used to be used. When I notified them of that, um, uh, it was noted um, a researcher at WSU was calling it uh, goat uh, goat strain because goats really carry it at a high prevalence. Um, that seems to be the highest that I've seen it. The most frequently I've ever detected it has been in goats, and um, when I say 
that like I've tested thousands of goats, just like I've tested thousands and thousands of sheep. Um, so literally thousands and thousands of goats. Um, so we developed a PCR while I was at Kansas to differentiate those two, right? So it's a PCR that it tells you if the animal has ovinomonia, this conjunctive A-like novel species or both. I thought that was important to make sure that we could, dif- that assay was sure. differentiating those two, um, since there was similarity and other published protocols identified both, um, yeah. both of them as being mycoplasma ovinomoniae when they're not both ovinomoniae. So that, that is um, exactly correct, that, that yeah. PCRs have not always been specific and you don't know until you look in depth. So, sure. so going back to your point about, you know, kind of living with this pathogen, has there been some work into vaccine development? for sheep uh, or any species, I should say? There has been. So um, the the farm that, the first farm that's in that emerging infectious disease publication where we identified it in whitetail um, in the Midwest, they, they sent it to a, a vaccine, autogenous vaccine company, um, and they started giving inoculations of autogenous vaccine. They said it provided improvement um, I, I don't know that it wasn't controlled and I don't know if, uh, there was no data actually collected from what that meant, but it seemed, they said it seemed like their fawn mortality went down. <clears throat> There's a couple of papers looking at like autogenous like vaccine. It's a very small study. That was more of a safety study that was done at WSU. So few animals. I don't know if it's a true safety study even. Um, I think mycoplasma Ovenomonia is going to be a tough one. Uh, for one, it's mucosal, so inoculating might not work as well, even though white-tailed deer folks seem to think that maybe it will because this other farm is trying that, op- op- um, that option also. Um, there is no licensed vaccine, though, in the United States. I think there was some vaccine that was available, and I don't know if it still is, like in Australia or New Zealand, that was an injectable Um uh, yeah, it's a tough one because mycoplasmova pneumoniae also as it's lining those cilia that I was talking about, that yep. little carpet, it takes, I picture this little primitive bacterium taking pieces of mucosa and covering itself up, if that makes sense. So it almost yep. masks itself and it gets itself to a place that, that, um, that antibodies might not be able to attach to it it would require an mucosal immune response. So maybe during times of, of stress, if there was maybe an intranasal or a vaccine that, you know, had an, had an adjuvant or a helper in it that directed the immune system to go in the right direction would be a possibility. Was a few things that we were looking at. I think right now what's missing is understanding the different serotypes potentially. I don't, that's not really a phrase used with mycoplasma of pneumonia, but the different genotypes, the different types of mycoplasma of pneumonia to understand what makes one potentially, if it's not just the host that caught, that determines whether there is a disease process or not. But I also think there's a difference in mycoplasma. So it is known that sheep and goat carry two different genotypes for the most part of mycoplasma ovinomoniae. And why that is, because it almost seems like it contradicts what I just said, that mycoplasma ovinomoniae can infect multiple species. I don't, I can't wrap my head though around why there's subtypes or genotypes, different types that are primarily found in goats. Like there is a genetic difference in the mycoplasma. And is that why when you put goats with bighorn sheep, that bighorn sheep don't die at the rate that they do? Do Domestic sheep carry a type of mycoplasma of pneumonia that carries some virulence that we don't understand. And until we work that out, I don't think we could, we're going to be able to develop an effective vaccine. I I think we have to understand what we're aiming at, at the, at the bacteria to, to protect against it. Yeah. And that, that'd be incredibly important information. Uh, You know, in your opinion, are there other, kind of unknowns or questions that research needs to address to, to be able to better combat against mycoplasma open pneumonia? To combat it. Let's see. Um, 
I think detection, like a, a more sensitive detection method. Yeah. Um, but then I still go back to even if we had that, the hope would be if we could, if we do, we just give up and trying to eradicate it, right? Because I feel yeah. like that almost has to be what happens, right? Yeah. Um, the other is to understand immune response and what makes yeah. Yeah. a protective immune response. Um, and how you can help the host to fight. Right. Yeah. Like, it, it, is it really environment and nutrition? You know, like it is with most uh, diseases that animals can be carry, carriers of pathogens and not develop disease. Um, so those really are the phylogenetic history. It would be nice rather than dogma and, and assumptions that have been made about mycoplasma of pneumoniae. Um, I comment on that in that emerging infectious disease paper that it would be ideal to get, you know, like maybe a half dozen full length sequences from each species that we can identify mycoplasma of pneumoniae in and line them up and do like a phylog phylogenetic analysis, which really looks at the genome in depth to determine are they really that much different? Where are they different in their genomes? What proteins are those different? Where does it look like? Because you can look at evolution then too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's doll sheep in the northernmost part of Alaska where a domestic animal could never have been unless they dropped them out of helicopters that have been, had ovinomonia detected. Where'd that come from? If right. it was true that ovinomonia was never here, it's one of the most primitive bacteria at some point in time, the continents were kind of all together. Right. And there was a yeah. passage across the strait from Russia. Yeah. And if, if caribou carry it, like where it would just be, I find that part yeah. fascinating, but it would at least kind of end. Answer you know, some questions. Yeah. It would answer some questions. Will that help egg animals? Will that help wildlife that carry it? Maybe not as much, but it'll help us understand. So we, so we stop wasting so much energy on the political part of this and actually try to start working more on the disease aspect of yeah. it. Yeah. So obviously, you know, this is a, a controversial pathogen disease subject in general. Uh, and there's a lot of information, as I kind of mentioned earlier, that's out there. But in your opinion, where can people go to find objective science-based resources to learn more about mycoplasma of pneumonia? Uh, in and the potentially related diseases in small ruminants, where where can they go to to find good solid information? Uh, not to the news. <laughs> <laughs> not a big shocker there. <laughs> so uh, where it's just written out and understandable. Well, I just where where someone could go to to learn more if they want to, you know, kind of follow up. Oh, to understand this, this problem yeah. a little bit more. There are, and I don't know if you can share it on the podcast after I could share some websites with you. Um, so USDA, APHIS has yep. some information pages on mycoplasma and what's been known. And I think they do a good job just kind of staying balanced, right? Yep. That this is what we know. This is, and that's what we're going to say about it. Um I would like to say literature, like scientific literature, but you read it and I read words like irrefutable and every like the it's kind of where that hoopla has like kind of percolated into actual research scientific papers. But there are some really good scientific papers that um, also for for the audience that, you know, is not doesn't read literature a lot like that, like that kind of literature, like scientific literature. Um, I would say do a search on for you on the USDA on APHIS's website and have a look through there. Um, there are some review papers um, that are available that I think are probably easy enough to read, but um, I would just say read everything with a with like some objectivity, like know that. You know, don't believe everything you read, like most sure. topics, but in particular, this one and question everything. I think if, yeah. if we don't continue doing that, you end discovery, right? You end a true understanding, especially with such a complex problem. Um, so yeah. I don't really have a great answer for you. I know there's a lot of places. No, not no. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't believe everything. 
Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you this last question. If if you could leave our listeners with, with one take home message, maybe, maybe don't believe everything you read is it, but uh, you know, we are kind of winding down. Is there something that you would like to leave, leave our audience with today? Yeah, I don't, I guess, I guess that would be it. Don't believe everything that you read. And, you know, I've always, I always felt like I needed to be almost apologetic for all the work that I've done because it seemed like all of the discoveries made things so much worse than better. You know, it like pushed, it pushed for, you know, banning animals in certain areas and for the fencing. And um, I really, for people in the, in the lower 48, I would look into what is going on in the Yukon and Alaska right now. Um, that would be a take home message. If you can look into that, um, they're, especially the Yukon, um, they are really undergoing a big fight there and for goats. Um, so, uh, take home message. Don't believe everything you read and, um, be critical when you read something of, of what you're reading and, um, other take home message. I'm always happy to talk to people if they contact me. And I don't know if they have a way to contact through the web, through this podcast or not, but you can find me at the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory pretty easily if you search my my name and WVDL. Um, so if anybody out there that hears this would like or would like to refute anything that I've said, I'm always up for a good challenging. Uh, there you go. <laughs> a good challenging uh, contradiction. So excellent. Well, Dr. Highland, this has been great. Uh, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. We, we really appreciate it. And also, on behalf of, of sheep producers everywhere, uh, thanks for dedicating a, a large part of your scientific career to a topic area that carries a, a considerable amount of controversy and, and is receiving so much outside influence to report something that may be a twisted version of the truth. Uh, and so your willingness to work with that pressure is, is admirable. Uh, so, so thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for uh, having to, me. Sure. Uh, and to our audience, thank, uh, thank you also for your continued support by listening each month. Uh, and until next time, eat lamb, wear wool, and remember to stay informed on the tough topics. Hopefully this podcast allows you to do all three of those at once. Have a nice day.